if you have your Bible, encourage you, invite you to turn to Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. And then for those of you who are new here, we, are, we have been going through the book of Acts, uh, verse by verse, passage by tra- passage, chapter by chapter. And here we come to this part, an interesting part of the story. And today's sermon is going to be a little bit different from usual, and you'll, we'll still walk through the verses, but most of what I'll be saying today will be more applicational, uh, practical, topical, if you will. And when I finish reading it, you'll probably know why that is the case. So Acts chapter 15, I'll begin by reading from verse 36. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, there's a story that was told of two porcupines in the free, living in the freezing season in the North Woods. And in order to make themselves feel warm, they were there to huddle together. However, when they tried to get close to each other, their quills pricked each other, and they had to separate from each other. So they needed each other, but they needled each other with their sharp quills. You know, sometimes Christians and church members can be like those porcupines. You know, we are the church, we're the gathering of God's people. Uh, To be members of the body of Christ, we need each other. But sometimes, we needle each other. Even sometimes Christians have good intentions in helping others and can make all the good points and maybe think they're doing so in love, but you sometimes find that they're so unapproachable and you can't even get near them. You know, one of the saddest things that happens is when parents, best friends, or business partners separate from each other because they do not see eye to eye, and they cannot resolve their conflict. And likewise, this happens all too often in the church among Christians. It can be sad and discouraging when Christians hurt one another due to disagreements and conflicts and due to personality clashes. And this hurt can then evolve into unforgiveness, uh, grudge, uh, and bitterness against one another. Now, some of you may be shocked to hear that, to hear me say that, because you often hear that Christians are supposed to love one another. And indeed, you're correct in making that assumption. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples to love one another. 
and by loving one another that we prove to the world that we are the disciples of Jesus if we have loved one another, and that includes our enemies. You know, that love means sacrificial love, uh, that love that Jesus showed by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And so as Christians, God instructs us to die to ourselves and lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And even Jesus prayed for believers that they may be one, that they may be in unity, so that we can tell the whole world that the Father has sent Jesus Christ into the world. So loving one another and pursuing unity are no small matter. They're essential to Christian living. Uh, When they're lived out, they sent a message to the world, to the non-believing world, that we are indeed followers of Jesus. Unfortunately, we fall short, don't we? Although we're supposed to be more like Jesus, the indwelling sin still remains in us, and we give into our flesh. We may be prideful, stubborn, selfish, self-centered, easily angered, hypocrites, and being too quick to speak and slow to listen, a.k.a. and also getting to argue, being argumentative, that is, a.k.a. being quarrelsome. So in our passage this morning, Paul tells Barnabas that it is time to return to those churches that they planted to see how they've been doing since it's been about a year that they're on furlough. This is the preliminary mark of Paul's second missionary journey from this passage all the way to chapter 18. And we can tell that Paul had a pastoral heart. He cared about the people, their souls, and their physical and spiritual well-being. And so for Paul, his mission in life was more than just winning converts, turning them to Jesus. But his desire is to get to know them and see, to see how they're doing and to also see that if they're maturing spiritually in Christ. And Barnabas thought, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do this. And after agreeing with the plan, Barnabas has his own idea for the second missionary journey. He wanted to take John Mark with them. But Paul disagreed and objected Barnabas' proposal. Now, this is a rather unpleasant reading. It's not a pretty picture, if you will. Because here's the thing. You see two, these, uh, two godly men, two godly leaders of the church, best friends, ministry partners for many years, that they had a sharp disagreement that resulted in separating from each other. Like, what just happened? Like, what happened here? Like, if you remember earlier in the passage, Paul and Barnabas had already engaged in a debate with the false teachers. And then they brought the controversy to the, to the apostles and to the elders in the Jerusalem church, and they had a debate with each other. And then eventually they came to unity on the doctrine of salvation. But what is so unusual in this specific passage is that Paul and Barnabas handled their disagreement differently from the previous passage. See, they weren't disagreeing or debating about doctrinal issues here. They weren't even disagreeing on the need to go visit the churches that they planted. 
They're disagreeing on whether to bring John Mark with them. So to put it in the language of church leadership, this is a disagreement on method, ministry methodology and ministry strategy. Now, why would Paul object to the idea of bringing John Mark? It is because he withdrew from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them in the mission work back in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Luke didn't get explicitly give us a reason why John Mark abandoned his responsibility. I gave some possible reasons when I went through that verse, so you can go back to the church website and listen to that sermon again. But what is clear here in this passage is that John Mark's abandonment left a sour taste for Paul. He wasn't pleased with what he did. It was a serious breach in ministry. Now, I don't know exactly what they said to each other, but if I can just picture and just imagine what they may have said, Paul might have said to Barnabas, look, ministry is tough. It's hard work. It's not for the faint of heart. And John Mark demonstrated that he's not suitable to be an assistant. He's not suitable to be a missionary. He essentially disqualified himself from ministry. What if he abandons again if we take him? What if he abandons us again when we go through the thick of the road? Uh, I don't want to repeat that experience, so let's not bring John Mark with us. However, Barnabas might have defended John Mark. And he might have, told, might have said this to Paul. You know, Paul, I'm not discounting what he did back in Pamphylia, but that incident happened a year ago, around a year ago. Come on, like, it's possible that John Mark grew. He matured in his faith. You ju- you're judging his ability based on his single mistake in ministry? You've got to be kidding me. Surely you can be gracious about it, Right? Surely you, you believe in giving someone a second chance, right? You should be gracious and forgiving to him. You're being way too harsh with your judgments. Don't let the past dictate your decision for today. Like I said, I don't know if that's what they said to each other, but you can imagine that might have been what happened. And, and if you know anything about Barnabas so far, then you should remember that his name, Barnabas, means son of encouragement. That's just who he was. He was an encouraging guy. He was very gracious and gentle. Sadly, they couldn't come to an agreement. And this disagreement was actually so intense to the point that Luke reports for us that there arose a sharp disagreement. Now, this, word, this phrase, sharp disagreement in the Greek, usually uh, it means to stir to anger or to be irritated or to be provoked. So it wasn't just a simple disagreement. It was a heated argument that led to anger based on intense difference of opinion. And as a result, Paul and Barnabas did not see eye to eye and decided to split apart. And I don't think that they separated on good terms. I don't think they did what we usually do as church leaders, agree to disagree and move on. I don't think they did that. I don't think they had mutual respect for each other when they separated because of this phrase, sharp disagreement. See, and then what happened is that Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. And what happened to Barnabas? He vanished. We never hear from Barnabas again in the book of Acts. 
And we can understand why Barnabas took him to, they went to Cyprus, because Cyprus was Barnabas' native land. And Paul took Silas with him, who was one of the delegates from the previous passage. And so this one mission team turned into two separate mission teams. And the question that usually arises when reading this passage is, who was right in this conflict, in this disagreement? Now, if, that, if you are asking that question, let me just say this. We should handle this question carefully because there's a consensus in most of the commentaries that Luke doesn't put any blame on, any, on someone or anyone in the disagreement and division. However, based on what we see in Scripture, it is possible that the weight of evidence favors Paul in this scenario. See, Luke does, Luke does state clearly that Paul was commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, but nothing is said about Paul, Barnabas being commended. Again, we never hear Barnabas again in the book of Acts. And what, also what happens in Luke chapter 16 is that Luke actually travels with the apostle Paul because the pronoun here from they or, from they or them it turns into we, uh, Barnabas, Luke, and Silas themselves, and also Timothy. So in principle, perhaps it might have, not been, it might have been wise not to take John Mark with Paul in this situation, but it doesn't make Barnabas less right for being gracious and encouraging. In conduct, however, I think both Paul, Paul and Barnabas were in the wrong. Just because you're right in principle doesn't mean you're right in conduct. Their sharp disagreement ended in being heated and angry. Perhaps Paul repented and he learned about his behavior later on. And so he penned down 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter. Love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. So I think Paul and Barnabas in this, in this situation responded to their disagreement, not in love, not in humility, but in sin, in pride, and in anger. What a rocky start to the second missionary journey. Just imagine this happened to you. When you're starting a ministry like that, you had a sharp disagreement with someone. You can imagine that, that you'll be d- deeply discouraged by that. Now, Luke was very honest here. He was honest in reporting this incident to us as readers of the Bible. He, he didn't have to report this incident of our two heroes of the faith. He could have just focused on the success and the victory in this chapter, which is unity. But Luke never does that. He always highlights the sin that happens in, in the Christians. We've seen that in the book of Acts. And so I, what I appreciate about the Bible is its honesty on realism. The Bible doesn't try to paint a perf, uh, uh, doesn't try to paint perfectionism. It doesn't try to cover up failures and sins of godly believers. And so this small passage is very instructive for us believers. It's very practical for us to really consider. Taking in various passages of scripture and also wisdom from an author that I consulted, his name is Alexander Strzok, uh, there are lessons to be learned about disagreements and conflicts. First, regarding church 
a conflict-free church is a myth. See, as humans, we are social beings. We're created to be in relationships with people. However, with any interpersonal relationships, you'll eventually run into conflicts. This can happen anywhere. With church, we certainly are not free from conflict because we interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ who are unique and different from us, from me. Yet we also remember that we have indwelling sin in us. Even spiritually, the spiritually mature believers like, and church leaders like uh, Paul and Barnabas were not free from conflicts. In his book, The Mark of the Christian, Francis Schaeffer once said this, and I quote, What divides and severs true Christian groups and Christians? What leaves a bitterness that can last for 20, 30, 40 years, or for 50 to 60 years in a son's or memory's daughter's memory? It is not the issue of doctrine or belief that caused the differences in the first place. Invariably, it is a lack of love. And the bitter things that are said by true Christians in the midst of differences. End quote. Moreover, many Christians may get discouraged and quit serving the Lord as a result of a clash of other believers in the church. You know, sometimes they may even grow cynical and even disenchanted about the church and the Christian life because of that conflict. Soon, they may find little to no value to Christianity. They don't think church works because it functions just like the wicked and sinful world. And perhaps even leaving the church altogether because they don't want to deal with people who are part of it. And, and if that is you this morning, it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder, have you bought into the idea that, that the church is supposed to be conflict-free? Because that is actually a myth. And if that is you this morning, then let me ask you a question. Have you not read the scriptures? The New Testament makes it clear that Christians had conflicts with one another, and the authors needed to address them. Let me just give you some sampling. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, brothers. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. I entreat Euodia and, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Another, another sampling. Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Maybe we think that, well, if Jesus Christ was here on earth, there'll be no conflict. Well, let's take a look at Mark chapter 9. When Jesus was on earth, that did not prevent the disciples from having conflict with each other. It says... And they, and they came to Capernaum, and when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, that is the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
that's a dumb thing to, to argue about. So the church is not immune to conflicts and disagreements. That's the first realization we need to come to grips with about the church. Conflict-free church is a myth. Now, why do disagreements and conflicts happen? Why do they happen? Again, just like in any relationship, there are probably endless reasons why they happen in a church. Some, of the, some reasons why conflict happens are not inherently sinful, while some are due to sin. Let me just quickly brief them for you. First, personality differences. You may want to take note of this if you want. Uh, first, personality differences. Usually it's due to different personalities, different point of views, different preferences, uh, different ideas. Some of you are introverts, some of you are extroverts. Some of you like to be with folks who talk like you and look like you, and even agree with you on everything. But love teaches us to get out of our echo chambers and learn to appreciate the differences of others. And so that's one of the reasons why there's conflict, personality differences. Second, poor communication. We may assume that communication is easy. We just talk to people. We type to people. But it's actually not easy. Communication is hard work. Unfortunately, people don't like hard work, especially in this digital era. We're usually careless in the way we communicate with people because we make the assumption that the other person will understand what we're saying and what we mean. But when that person misunderstands what we're saying, it can lead to conflicts and cause us to, it might cause us to sin. Third, change. We're creatures of habits. Some of us may like changes, but most do not. And when there are, when there are changes in the church, oftentimes there are people fighting about this stuff. They don't want change. I want to stick to my status quo. Fourth, this is a sin, pride. We can be self-centered. We can be egotistic. Pride often clouds our thoughts and prevents us from considering the values of others. And pride may cause us to be dismissive of others. You know, you have a good point, but... We always like to use the word but. And then when you... I was listening to a podcast the other day. Uh, whenever people use the word but, that's actually a way to just knock down all the things you said. I, you, you know, you make a good point, but... And then you start dismissing all the other points. And you start countering everything. What, what the other person's saying. Be careful of that. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. So there are, there are many more I can talk about. There's so many reasons why disagreements and conflicts happen in the church. Again, it can happen in any relationships. It can happen at work. It can happen in the, at home, in the family, marriage, everything. And when there are unresolved conflicts, Satan uses that to make believers and the church weak and ineffective for the kingdom work. Sweeping conflicts under the rug and dismissing them can be hazardous in the local church. It's like cancer. You may not see it outwardly, but it's inside a person. That's gonna, but it's inside a person. 
That's because, when, because you're allowing sins such as bitterness, anger, and unforgiveness to enslave your emotions and your thinking. Paul said in Ephesians 4, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. When you're so angry and you're not willing to move on and forgive, Satan can use that to, to twist your emotions, twist your thinking, twist your thinking about the other person. So therefore, we are to be on guard. And so consequently, when we're not dealing, when there are unresolved conflicts, the local church will remain unhealthy and impure, sometimes even to the point of potentially closing its doors. Years ago, there's an article published by Christianity Today. Um, it's, it's titled, why, why Do Pastors Leave the Ministry? Apparently, the number one reason why they leave the ministry is because they get tired of endless interpersonal conflict and complaining within the family of believers. From 2020 all the way to 2022, you know, what was the biggest event that happened? COVID-19. COVID-19 and even political conflict were two topics that triggered the resignation of many pastors because there was a lot of strife in the church. Therefore, conflicts must be resolved before they turn into strife. Proverbs 17, verse 14 says, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. It's like it was using a picture of a dam, right? And so quit before the quarrel breaks out. And when, that, the, the, when the dam just breaks apart, it'll destroy villages, destroy cities. So we gotta deal with those things before it becomes destructive. However, having heard what I just said, we shouldn't be too discouraged about it because we should learn that disagreements and conflicts are opportunities for growth. They're opportunities for growth. The question is not how to avoid them, although we should try to avoid them as much as we can, but when they do come to us, how are we to respond to and handle the conflicts with biblical principles. See, disagreements and conflicts are normal. They're inevitable. They're not always bad things. They're not always negative. It is an opportunity for us to grow and to humbly learn from them. Alexander Strand, he says that there are positive aspects of conflict that can grow us in Christ. Uh, let me just walk through, through all these points. First, Conflict exposes our inner character and spiritual condition. He says that during moments of conflict, we might not be the best version of ourselves. That's when we get to test how well we fulfill biblical commands, like those of love. In no situation, how are we loving one another? Are you short-tempered? Are you angry? Are you unforgiving? Do you hold on to pride? Do you hold on to selfishness? Are you poor listeners? Are you resisting others? Are you independent? Are you unteachable? Or are you humble, patient, kind, wise, balanced, forgiving? You know, God can use the pressure of conflict to reveal to us who we really are 
It's not the conflict causes us to become like this, but it reveals to us what is deep down in our hearts in the first place. And when that happens, it often humble, it should humble us. It should cause us to repent and to seek God's help for, for our weaknesses and for our lack of love. So that's the first point. Second is, conflicts can help clarify doctrinal beliefs. We learn from uh, Acts 15 that the Jerusalem Council clarified the doctrine of salvation and debated Gentile requirements to enter into the, the church community. And as a result of this conflict, there is greater unity and there is greater clarity of the gospel. And certainly when conflicts arise to, due to doctrinal issues, we cannot give our opinions. We cannot give our experiences, per se. We must go to the word of God and study it diligently and reassess our beliefs and convictions, do all the hermeneutical work and exegesis and doctrine so that we know what we believe. And if you don't know how to do that, it's time to get back to the basics. And when we understand how to do that, uh, we become more sharp in our biblical and theological literacy and to correct and to refine our doctrinal weaknesses. Even when we must defend doctrine, however, we must be careful. Because sometimes, often what happens when there are dis doctrinal disagreements, there's always the way we respond to it is sometimes sin too. We must defend doctrine with our godly behavior and speech. Alexander Strauss says this, and I quote, Disagreeing with a brother over a doctrinal matter is one thing, but pouring out vile, angry accusations, distorting another person's beliefs, demonizing a godly saint, and acting belligerently or childishly is another matter, end quote. Third, conflicts can help improve our communication and problem-solving skills. You know, conflict forces you to learn to speak more accurately, and to speak more carefully. That's, as always been said, say what you mean and mean what you say. Sometimes it teaches you to get to the point instead of getting sidetracked and beating around the bush. Get straight to the point. Um, when we look at our culture and our society, we see people handling conflict by violence killing each other, or even suing each other, canceling each other, this cancel culture, and, and so much more. We've just lost the art of sitting down and talking to each other and listening to each other. And what happens when those conflicts happen? We start talking over each other. We don't learn to listen. We learn to, we learn to try to win arguments instead of learning to listen. And some people are easily outraged by disagreements and they're just unwilling to listen to another point of view and sometimes get rather heated. And I think learning the skills of managing conflict will not just help you get along with other Christians in the church, but it will also serve to in you in every area of life, like marriage, school and work and home, other places. That's the third point. Fourth point, conflict can strengthen group relationships. See, it is a myth to think that people who love one another never fight or disagree. It is a myth. And just because there are conflicts in any relationships, it doesn't mean those relationships are unhealthy. People in healthy marriages 
people in healthy churches have conflict and disagreements. Obviously, Christians have legitimate disagreements and different perspectives from one another. And when those disagreements are resolved, it should strengthen the relationship and you should, and, and also it should help you to appreciate the other person. Fifth, God is wonderfully glorified when we resolve our conflicts in a sane and loving way. Resolving conflicts in the local church can potentially nurture a healthier church when it's done in the most excellent way, which is love. And when conflicts do happen, scriptures give us many guidelines and principles for handling them. And when things get heated, we may often forget these biblical principles. And we fall into the world's way of fighting for power, fighting for control, fighting, for manipulate, fighting to manipulate other person. That's not what we're supposed to do. And so I'm not going to walk through every single one of them, but these are just some principles I want you to reflect upon and think about. Uh, first, be spirit-controlled, not out of control. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And the Holy Spirit helps us to bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And last one is self-control. Second, we learn to control the passion of anger. In any conflict, the first emotion to control is anger and frustration. Anger makes us not care what we say or do. It also makes us not care what the other person says and does. It's an emotion that can make us go so out of control that the devil, the evil one, would control and use that situation and to blow things out of proportion. So we've got to be careful of that because love is not, is not irritable. Love is not resentful. We've got to remember to love. Third, be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. Did you know that there are things that God hates? There are things that God hates in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, there's a list of things that God hates, and seven of them are an abomination to him. The last thing on the list that God hates is one who sows discord among brothers. And whenever you're trying to sow discord among brothers, you better fear God. Instead of, where, instead of waging war on others, we need to wage peace. Jesus says this about his followers, that we are to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. But being peacemakers doesn't mean we compromise and that we tolerate falsehood, that we to- tolerate sin. It doesn't mean that at all. Uh, those things are to be addressed by Christians, especially spiritual leaders in the church, but we are to do so with love and kindness Even sometimes tough love, too. But if the issues are not doctrinal, and if the issues are generally secondary or tertiary, or just different perspectives on strategy and methods, those things should and can be resolved peacefully. Fourth, be humble. Be humble. I don't know know what else I can say more about this. That can just be a sermon in of itself, because human pride, some of us struggle with pride a lot. Some of you don't struggle with pride as much. But human pride underlies most conflict and divisions. And just like our Lord Jesus, we are to be humble. Uh, 
modest and teachable when handling conflicts. Fifth, control the war of words. Again, when we go through anger, go out of control. Sometimes we use hurtful languages, especially in the midst of conflicts. And, and Proverbs has a lot of things to say about words. He said, the book of Proverbs says that life and death come out of the tongue. With your words, you can bring life to people. With your words, you can destroy a person. So don't use words as daggers to throw at people. Hurtful words are like gasolines that inflame the other person's emotions. If you want to persuade someone in a disagreement, then use appropriate language. Proverbs 16, verse 21 says, The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And to, I'm going to read out the rest of the list for the audio. Six, don't attack the person. Attack the issues. Seventh, seek to understand, not just argue. Eighth, seek to find areas of agreement. Ninth, be tolerant and unforgiving. Tenth, balancing love and truth. So my exhortation for you is this. When you handle conflicts, which of those biblical principles will you need to work on by the grace of God? And having given you practical principles, biblical principles for you to consider when handling conflict, I want to return to our passage this morning for some final thoughts. Because Paul's relationship with Barnabas and Paul, they do, it doesn't actually end negatively. There is a closure, if you will, to this conflict and disagreement. Now, we do not know with 100% certainty if Paul and Barnabas forgave each other and reconciled. It's possible that that happened. Uh, and I'm sure, hopefully, they forgive each other because the Lord Jesus Christ told us, instructed us to forgive one another. And we would wish script, that Scripture would clearly tell us that they patched their relationships. We do know, however, that they never work as a team again, ever again. But there's a little bit of hint in Scripture that tells us maybe that they patched their relationship. Paul did mention Barnabas later on in one of his letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, he brings up Barnabas in the letter. And he doesn't say any bad things about him. He says good things about him in a supportive manner. But that's all we got from Scripture. And while I believe that Paul and Barnabas and share the same life in Christ and his fundamental doctrines, it doesn't always mean that they need to work closely with one another when they have genuine differences. Tradition says that Barnabas stayed in, stayed on, uh, stayed in Cyprus, and perhaps during those times, Barnabas discipled his little cousin, John Mark, until he died. Eventually, later on in life, Paul gave John Mark another chance. And John Mark did prove himself to be faithful in the end. Can you imagine that? Well, where does it say in Scripture? 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Just, just before Paul was about to be executed 
and killed for his faith, he instructed Timothy to bring a special person with him to Paul in, in Rome while, he, while Paul was in prison. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Go get that guy and bring him with you. Why? Because for he is very useful to me in ministry, for ministry. Paul also commends Mark in Colossians 4.10 and Philemon chapter 20, uh, chapter, uh, verse 24 as his fellow worker. Eventually, John Mark became the, the Apostle Peter's spiritual son. And Peter mentions him in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. And God would use John Mark to pen down the gospel of Mark for us to learn about the person and work of Jesus Christ and to point sinners, to point non-believers to repent of their sins and to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Sources suggest that John Mark became a bold evangelist, spreading the gospel in the Roman Empire. And it says that when Mark returned to Alexandria, he tried to evangelize to the Alexandrians and turn them away from worshiping idols. But the idolaters of the city resented his efforts. And in AD 68, according to Fox's Book of Martyr, the people of Alexandria placed a rope around his neck and mercilessly dragged him to pieces through the streets until he was dead. So, John Mark was once a quitter, but he eventually and truly became a soldier and a martyr for Christ in declaring the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, even to the point of dying for his faith. Furthermore, what can we learn about the man himself or the men themselves, the Apostle Paul and, and Barnabas? A lot of things. I can go on. But Paul himself was a pioneer, zealous missionary. His personality was rather strong. That's why strong leaders like Paul can withstand persecution and accomplish mission. That was Paul's strength. However, it's been said that one's biggest strength is often the source of one's greatest weaknesses. Paul's weakness may have been his unwillingness to be gracious in accepting failure and work with spiritual men like Paul, uh, John Mark, who had the potential but that wasn't there yet. But as you read the Apostle Paul's letters, you can learn that he has changed and that he became tender-hearted and caring for people. And he also gave Mark another chance. He learned to balance, perhaps, his strengths and weaknesses. And that's something we need to learn, too. And this can be, the same can be said about Barnabas. His strengths were gentleness and encouragement. He was very welcoming to outsiders. Yet his weakness could have been being overly gracious, overly charitable, and not willing to confront sin when needed. Paul mentions this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 13, that Barnabas was influenced by the hypocrisy of Peter so that he also became a hypocrite. I know people have said that my strength is in scriptures, Bible knowledge, preaching and teaching, yet at the same time, the potential weakness could, that can lead to sin is to be puffed up and arrogant and unteachable. So we as brothers and sisters, as Christians, we should lean towards serving the Lord with our strengths, 
for His glory. But we should also be cautious that our strengths do not lead us to sin if we're not guarding our hearts, own hearts. So I'm going to wrap this up by having us focus on the sovereignty and, and providence of God. While it is an, an unfortunate event that we just saw, we can look at this story from, a, from another angle. See, this one missionary team turned into two missionary teams, thus doubling the effectiveness and coverage of mission efforts. And sometimes on, on some rare occasions, maybe it is necessary for two Christians or two ministries uh, to, who share common beliefs to go separate ways in ministry. Nonetheless, we should also be reminded that with this could not halt the work of God. He is greater. God is greater than our weaknesses. God is greater than our folly and our sins and our conflicts and disagreements. He is not flinched by them, but certainly not pleased when his children fight with each other. However, God can use separation for his own glory. As we've seen in scripture, he can use, use that to, for his own glory in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth, to see lives being transformed and lives changed, to see sinners come to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. God can use sin and evil for his good. And, we, and that really testifies to the truth of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For those who love God, God works out all things for good. So both men went their own separate ways. But they were never so discouraged and disappointed that they stopped serving the Lord Jesus Christ. They continued to be faithful to him. And they continued the Great Commission. And so, what does that have to say to you? What can I say to you? If you're experiencing conflicts and maybe have caused division in the past, know that God has given you everything in his word, as we just learned, to handle them. You know, I'll just say this. I'm not perfect in this area. I need God's grace in this area in handling conflicts. So I want to offer you hope that there is hope for you if you have failed in this area and that you can turn to the foot of the cross of Jesus and to confess your sins, repenting of your sinful behavior, believe that God is faithful and just to forgive you. And God can use those, God can use them to transform you, to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for this message. Thank you that we, that we are confronted with this topic. And I ask that for those of us who struggle with anger, even anger management, for those of us who struggle with sin, for those of us who don't know how to handle conflicts and situations like these, I cast that you, they will take this message to heart. Pray that you would transform us. Oh Lord, this is, this, these words are so helpful for us as believers that we can take into our lives and learn from them. Yet it's not easy. It's not us. It's not like a, it's not like it's slap onto us and that we learn how to live live them out. But it takes time. It takes time for you, O oh Lord, to sanctify us, to grow these principles into our lives, so that we may. And it takes time for us to hide your words into our hearts, so that we may not sin against you. 
So Lord, be with us. Help us in this area, in our marriage, in our homes, in our work, with our friends, in school, even at church. Please be with us. Help us to learn from this message. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.